Here in Australia, the recent Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety has highlighted the urgent need for a new direction when it comes to the treatment of our elderly and most vulnerable. This comes as no surprise to many, either those that are connected directly to the aged care industry, but also for those with loved ones in aged care. So change has been needed for a long time, but there's been no burning platform, no catalyst, no driving motivation at a systems level to make it happen, but potentially until now. So what role does technology play in the transformation of the aged care system? Is it a nice to have, or is it critical to the success of a better aged care system in Australia? So today, I'll be chatting with George Margilis. He's the Independent Chair at the Aged Care Industry Information Technology Council. And we're going to explore whether digital aged care is the answer. Let's do it, Team Health Tech. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is George Margilis. He's a medical practitioner who's been deeply involved in technology for the last 30 years. He's been a CIO of a private hospital group and managed innovative software development teams to produce online health applications. He's worked at Intel for a number of years through various iterations and been a senior advisor to HIMSS. In 2013, he was an adjunct associate professor at the University of Western Sydney with the Telehealth Research and Innovation Laboratory. He's been involved with Heiser and a number of health technology companies. And in 2019, he was appointed independent chair at the Aged Care Industry Information Technology Council. He also holds board positions with a number of companies and acts as a clinical reference lead with the Australian Digital Health Agency. And he's a member of the Advancing Aged Care Through Digital Health Advisory Group for the Digital Health Cooperative Research Centre. George, how are you going? G'day, Peter. Thanks for inviting me along. Thank you so much for joining. It's fantastic to have you and so timely to be here at this point where the findings from the Royal Commission are coming out and we're just digesting those, but also it's an issue that's been prevalent and needs to be talked about for a long period of time. So you being across it and also just across the use of technology in healthcare for so long, it's great to have you here. So thank you. My pleasure. I gave a bit of a whirlwind tour of your career, but it'd be great to get kind of your point highlighting any backgrounds or cliff notes. What really stands out for you in terms of your background, George? Well, thanks. Yeah, yeah well, it was a whirlwind, but it has been a 40-year career in, in health and health technology. So it's been a long and an interesting one. Professionally, I've got qualifications in medicine, optometry, and e-business. I've been involved in healthcare since 1979 when I enrolled in my first healthcare university degree, which was an optometry degree. Been involved in IT pretty much from the same time because back in those days, the School of Optometry was linked to the School of Physics. And, and we were one of the few places in the university that actually had a computer. We had access to a PDP-11, which... Uh, for most people out there have no idea what it is, but it's a great big chunky box of computing, which had 16K of RAM and stored things on punch cards. So we actually programmed it using Fortran in those days using punch cards, which was a, an interesting experience compared to what we're doing now. Pretty soon later, we got an Apple II. So we actually started progressing down the world of personal computing. And I was back then pretty geeky. So I must admit, I went out and bought a computer in 1981. And I know it was 1981, because the computer was called the Sinclair ZX81. So it was actually referred to the year that it was released. And um, it was a little tiny plastic device out of the UK with 1K of RAM, and it saved its files to a cassette tape. 
And back then it was awesome. You programmed it, you know, via this keyboard, which was about the half the size of a normal keyboard. You saved programs. It was black and white and displayed on a TV monitor. And it was awesome. And that was sort of my introduction to it. Pretty soon after I finished optometry, I started working clinically, got the itch to go back to university, started re-enrolled in medicine, spent a couple of years in medicine, still very actively involved in technology. So I remember getting uh, called into the dean's office in one of my very first assignments in medicine because I handed in a properly word processed document with formatted <laughs> borders and, and paragraphs. And the assumption was obviously someone else did this because, you know, university students couldn't do didn't have access to word processors in those days. So, so that was fun. And that, yeah, I uh, got actively involved in back in those days, we used bulletin boards as our means of communication. So it was like the equivalent of Facebook now were these uh, text only bulletin boards. And my tag on those on those bulletin boards was a geek doctor. So that was sort of yeah, my experience then. Got in, like I said, started studying medicine, got uh, ended up deferring for a couple of years as I took a bit of a sideline, got married, started a software distribution company, did a few other bits and exciting pieces, traveled a lot, went li literally visited the US 30 or 40 times in a matter of five or six years, back in the day when Silicon Valley was just starting to blossom. So yeah, Silicon Valley was really just a, a concept back in the early 80s. But uh, by the time I stopped visiting there in the late 90s, it had evolved uh, and there was a conference that was run there every year called Comdex, which started off with a couple of thousand people. And the last one I attended had 180,000 attendees. So to give you an idea of the size of, of how the industry grow. Sold my business, went back into medicine, graduated as a doctor, spent a couple of years in the hospitals working clinically, which was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. But recognizing that as a, an old geek doctor, there was probably a better way to get involved in healthcare. And that's how I got involved in health IT full on. So yeah, joined a private hospital group, took a role there as their CIO, CMO. It was a very combined role. That private hospital group is still actively involved in software and technology. So yeah, I won't name it, but it's, it's one of the most, that's done some amazing work. Got headhunted to join Intel back in 2005, which was an amazing experience. And I got a phone call from a guy from Intel saying, can you come in for a meeting? I thought I'd won a PC at a conference. So I thought, great, I'm going to get a brand new Intel PC. Ended up with an Intel job instead. <laughs> and then, yeah, Intel did some, some amazing stuff. And it's interesting, you know, as you look at a lot of the innovation that's happening now, a lot of that stuff was in the Intel labs back in, the, in 2005, which was really exciting. Left Intel about 2017, did some work with HIMS, did some work in various uh, other areas, started doing some board work. And two years ago, got tapped on the shoulder by the aged care industry information technology council to, to play a, a role there. And that's been really exciting. So I'm really you know, happy where I am now. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That covers a breadth of everything in the history there and the things that you've seen and the progression that you, you've obviously been part of and influenced. That's really cool. And just set the scene too, for those that aren't aware, like I'll get you to explain aged care in Australia in a second, but just the specifically the aged care industry information technology council, what's the focus there? So the council was officially formed in 2007, but back around about 2003, 2004, the two CEOs of the peak bodies at that time. So it was Rod Young was a, was a, the CEO of the Aged Care Society of Australia and Greg Mundy was also the chair of, so there was the profit and non-profit groups. I can't remember the specific names of the organizations now. They were really quite keen to foster the use of technology in aged care. So they started running these things called Aged Care Technology Roadshows. So where we'd, you know, a bunch of geeky aged care people would get together at a, in various cities around the country and, and just talk IT and demonstrate what they had. And I remember back in the day, some of the software vendors who are now, basically distribu distributing around the world, 
literally had a table and a and, and a PC and they were demonstrating their software, which they were selling in floppy disks to, to people you know, end users at the time. So you know, it was early days. It evolved into the council, which was designed to better support the adoption of technology by the um, provider community. And over the last 17 years, we've had over a dozen uh, national conferences. We've had a number of workshops. Uh, we've published a number of reports, including a technology roadmap for aged care. It really is for the industry. So it's not a consultancy. It's not a uh, external body. It's owned by the two peak bodies. And its key goal is to help providers utilize technology efficiently and effectively in their organizations to deliver better care. Excellent. Okay, that's a great summary. And then so operating within aged care, for those that aren't aware, can you help set the scene about the state of, of aged care in Australia today? Well, yeah, the fact that we needed a Royal Commission says a lot about the challenges in delivering aged care in Australia. Yeah? I have to say that in my experience, the vast bulk of aged care providers are amazing. They deliver really high quality, compassionate care to older Australians in need, but the system is under huge stress, significantly under-resourced, extreme workforce challenges, inefficiently regulated and it's isolated from other services so many of the horrifying examples we saw in the royal commission really are just symptoms of a system under severe stress it delivers residential care for those who can't stay at home but it also offers provides significant amounts of home care for those who prefer to stay at home and are able to stay at home uh, one of the big challenges is that it is separated from the healthcare system so those same people are, are receiving both aged care services and healthcare services. And one of the challenges thrown up by the Royal Commission was that once they end up in residential residential care services, their access to healthcare services becomes limited and fragmented. So it's a great system run by great people who are passionate about delivering care, um, but it's significantly under-resourced. It's challenging. The challenges of aging go far beyond just managing people's you know, health status. It's in managing their quality of life in years when their, their physiological bodies are starting to deteriorate, their minds are starting to deteriorate. And this is, goes beyond just aging. Aging is one thing. Aged care really focuses on those people who are at that pointy end of the aging uh, spectrum. You know, they need help and how we deliver it is, is complicated. The system is doing its best, but it's you know, the Royal Commission has highlighted that it needs a lot more help. So it comes to a point too that I'd love to get some more perspective from you about, and it speaks to that point that you said before that, you know, the majority of people in aged care will obviously require healthcare services and there's two kind of trains being you know, on the way there in terms of those systems. So technology in aged care, I'm very familiar obviously with healthcare technology and the technology that's used within healthcare. What is technology in aged care and what can it bring to that sector? Well, so it's interesting, last year we were actually tasked by the Department of Health to do a, a study on the current status of the use of innovation and technology in aged care. It's called the Care IT Report. It's available on our website, highly recommended to anyone who's interested in understanding what's happening. But what it revealed was, was no big surprise to us who had spent now 20 years in the industry, but it was extremely heterogeneous. I mean, there were some great examples of wonderful uses of technology, and there were some examples of people who literally didn't have a computer in their operation, or if they did, they used it for word processing and very little else. There were some great examples of innovation. I you know, call out people like Ferris Care up in Queensland, who 
were using things like Google Home in, in elderly people's homes to facilitate care management services. There are people like Baptist Care who are using remote patient monitoring services. But the bulk of aged care use technology purely for administration and financial purposes. It used it for reporting key requirements to government for funding, but didn't use it as part of the care service. And as we started seeing more complex care needs being delivered into aged care, Medication is a classic example where a lot of aged care providers are now responsible for managing medication, and yet the medication systems were either paper-based or totally disjointed from the clinical system. So there was a real mismatch there. But like I said, there were some real flowers blossoming in that midst. Through the council, we actually run an annual event, the ITAC conference, and we actually have awards at that conference where we award providers who have done innovative or implemented solutions really well. And there have been some really awesome ones there, but it's a minority. I mean, we found that you know, less than 40% of, uh, of aged care providers were using any technology systems clinically at all. When we looked at integration with things like My Health Record, it was like 2%. Those sort of key things that we need to be done. So what can technology offer? Well, look, it can offer a lot. And it's interesting because a lot of these things that it offers have been highlighted by the Royal Commission as requirements. So the first thing it can offer is transparency. We can capture data about services and we can make that data available to administrators, to regulators, to payers, and ultimately, and probably most importantly, to consumers and their families. And that will actually answer many of the problems identified in the Royal Commission. The fact that we actually know what's happening, we can assess the quality and safety of what's happening and we can use that to report back and understand what's happening to our elderly uh, Australians as they receive care and what care they're receiving and yeah, where it's lacking. We can do that. The other big thing it can offer is quality and safety improvements because it will enable a learning system. So in healthcare, yeah, Joanna Westbrook and her team have been focused very much on things like a learning healthcare system. Well, that same model can come into aged care. We can have a continuously learning system within aged care which uses data to focus on continuous improvement, not just focusing on administration details. Third thing, efficiency gains. When you look at how human resources are enabled in aged care, they're not managed efficiently. We don't use, deliver the right care to the right people at the right time because we just don't know who those people are, what care they need. So we have a sort of a blanket system of you know, sending out visiting nurses or having people doing rounds and residential aged care facilities. But if we can actually use some of that technology to automate those tasks that can be automated and free up the, the scarce human resources to do what they do best, the use of empathy, the use of compassion, the use of human you know, capital to improve people's status, that's really important. These are such good points. And then I think about you know, what we're doing within digital health, within healthcare. Are there some synergies that can be brought between aged care and healthcare or things that the aged care sector can learn from digital health or even vice versa? Uh, okay, absolutely. I mean, yeah, and I must admit, having spent 20 years in 20, well, more than 20 years in the acute care space, and now sort of in the aged care space, you can just see how many synergies there are. And one of the really exciting things we announced just recently was uh, our collaboration with the Australian Institute of Digital Health to share those learnings across those sectors so that the aged care sector can learn from healthcare and that healthcare can then also better understand complications and the complexity of aged care because you walk into any emergency department now and most beds are taken up by people over the age of 70, if not 80. I mean, so therefore, how does healthcare better interact with aged care so that 
people don't end up in emergency departments. And I think that's a really important part of the focus is how do we synergize what we do between the two industries so that the outcome is optimized for the individual, not for the, each, for the system. One of the key things we can learn from, from the digital health journey is the need for workforce training and education. I mean, we saw it very early on in, in healthcare where we implemented systems and just assumed everyone would learn how to use them. And we saw the resistance and the challenges associated with early EMR adoption. So understanding that workforce needs to be brought on the journey with you, needs to be engaged in the implementation of systems, needs to understand why they're being implemented. I mean, all of a sudden, I'm, you're being asked to you know, spend 15 minutes in front of a computer screen before, uh, between each client to enter information. What's the value of that? Am I, am I doing that purely for uh, administrative purposes or does it provide value to the, to the uh, individual I'm looking after? So those sort of things are really exciting for us to understand how we can do that better in aged care because the workforce in aged care is diverse. It's, yeah, it's predominantly migrant populations and uh, people who are taking on jobs that you know, are hard jobs. So we're now asking them to add one extra task to their already complex uh, job. And we're not telling them why. And you know, to be fair enough, they, they, they sort of say, well, I can spend that time doing better things. So getting them involved in, with training and education is important. The other thing we need to understand, and this is something which has come across a lot in healthcare, expecting and responding to unintended consequences. You know, we implement something. We have this wonderful PowerPoint graph which shows you know, the stepped implementation plan. Everyone tells you that the benefits realization is X million per, per implementation. And then reality strikes, you know, systems go down, systems actually capture wrong information, messages get lost in transit. The system is not designed to facilitate workflow. So clinicians work around the system and that causes all sorts of issues with the, with the quality of data. So the need to understand you need to prepare for unintended consequences and respond to them, do something about them, fix them up. Now, this is not a install once, move away, it'll, it'll be fine for the next 20 years. This is a ongoing process. Another important thing is standards. We learned early on in healthcare that if you don't standardize the way you communicate, you end up with miscommunication. So standardization of data, standardization of process, standardization of communication protocols, all those things are really important so that we do it once, do it properly, and scale it out going forward. Um, user interfaces, usability, I mean, yeah. I, I remember the very early EMR systems. I mean, seriously, they were they were, Great big Lotus one two three spreadsheets, and those of you who are too young to remember Lotus two one two three, it came before Excel. I, I know it. Uh, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. So we used to have these these basically accounting systems delivered to clinicians and said, okay, now we need you to enter data into all these little fields that are scattered across a a, a, a screen. And back in those days, now we didn't have twenty seven inch screens; we had eleven inch screens. So you can imagine what it was like trying to find. 30 different data fields on an 11 inch screen, the need to make usable solutions, shifting to mobile solutions. How can you capture data once, use it many times, capture it through a design. And finally, co-design, the need to focus specifically on the problems that are identified at the point of care, not the ones that are imagined by technologists and financiers. So now one of my exciting experiences I had when I was with Intel we were over in Silicon Valley. We were doing some work back then with the original Google Health. So yeah, for those of you who have heard about Google Health now, this is about its third or fourth iteration. Its original Google Health was gonna develop a personal health record for all people, 
it was fantastic. It had this idea that you know, it would capture all the data relevant to people around their healthcare, make it make it available through a Google Cloud. Even though it wasn't called Cloud in those days. It was a really exciting concept. But the problem was it was designed by 25-year-old engineers for 25-year-old engineers. So it captured data which was totally irrelevant to the predominant users of healthcare, you know, over 75s. It had this complex entry system which required you to match your Bluetooth device to a Wi-Fi hub and then connect that Wi-Fi hub to a third-party interface. And uh, Fantastic for engineers. Engineers loved it. It was a, uh, an engineering challenge, but usability-wise, it was totally useless to the end user, the elderly person with chronic disease who, who needed access to healthcare services. Yeah. That's the thing. I'm always fascinated by the use of technology in healthcare in Australia when there's all these really cool solutions that can be created and innovative use of tech. But in the end, like you say, a large proportion of Australians and anyone around the world that needs healthcare are in a demographic well over the age of 65 and have very different needs to what can be designed. So that can be you know, an important lesson for anybody creating solutions generally taken from what you've mentioned there as well. Yeah, the one comment I make there is that where I've seen is successful in these solutions when people involved in clinical care are actively involved in the development of solutions. Um, yeah, we touched earlier on companies like HealthMatch. They're involved in the problem. They, they've seen the problem firsthand, so therefore they go out and develop solutions. So big call out for organizations to leverage the clinicians out there who are really keen to work with technology companies, but to co-design solutions based on the problems they identify at the coalface. And as we go forward, better involvement of consumers as they identify the problems they face, but working with the people who are actually delivering care, because this isn't about delivering technology or, or gadgets. This is about delivering solutions that utilize technology and gadgets. Love it. That's clean. That's precise. That gives people a lot of clarity. I like it. The Royal Commission, uh, recommendations have come down. It's a big report. I've not read the entire thing. <laughs> so, so I have a physical copy of the eight volumes delivered to me a couple of days ago. So it's sitting on, on my bookshelf. I, I did read the PDF version, I must admit. <laughs> Look, uh, in terms of technology specifically, what's the upshot of it? Has it helped or hindered in terms of technology adoption in HK? That's pretty hard to answer at this stage. I mean, literally the, re the recommendations came out two weeks ago for today and um, the, the, the government still hasn't fully responded to it. Having said that, we've been actively involved with the Royal Commission over the last two years. Uh, we've submitted submissions to them. Uh, I've met with them a couple of times. I've had to have a number of aged care providers and had uh, some detailed discussions. It did identify the need for IT improvement. And yeah, they even quoted me a couple of times in the final report, which is pretty exciting. It's good to be named in a Royal Commission without being arrested afterwards. So it's <laughs> a really good thing. That is a good thing. Uh, yeah. Look, it has a very specific recommendation that all aged care providers have a digital healthcare management system by 2022, like 12 months away. That was actually July 1, 2022. However, it is very vague in the detail, you know, and it's extremely optimistic in the timing. So the reality is now it's up to the industry to sort of take that recommendation and work out what it means. You know, what is a digital care management system? How do we go about providing standards for that digital health care, that the digital care management system to integrate with other systems. Yeah, you know, they talk about it being developed on standards provided by the Australian Digital Health Agency. Well, like I said, I'm a clinical reference lead there. I work closely with their aged care group. Those standards don't exist yet. So the fact that we need to develop those standards and you know, we can leverage you know, standards we've been using in healthcare around secure messaging and HL7 and fire and, and SNOMED. I mean, the basics are there. 
but this, you know, it, it isn't a one-line discussion. Yeah, it's not something. And, and again, the classic example I, use, I like to use here is that back in about 2009, uh, President Obama released the High Tech Act, which they talked about you know, providing an EMR to all Americans and you know, supporting that. And yeah, that was both a, a clinical initiative and a, a financial initiative because of the global financial crisis at the time. But because of the lack of detail, you saw all sorts of confusion around what is an EMR, how do you develop it, who implements it, what standards does it use. And, and as a result, we saw billions of dollars spent, um, a lot of it wasted, in, in delivering systems which didn't provide the full set of value. Now, 10 years down the track, we're seeing that being constantly refined and we're now seeing that EMRs are an important tool in, in delivery of healthcare. But you know, without doing the groundwork upfront and just making a, a political announcement that you know, we're going to implement systems by X date without understanding what's involved is really going to uh, be a bit of a challenge. So yeah, the, the council hopes to take an active role in here. We want to work closely with the uh, government, with providers, with regulators, with technologists. We're working already with the Medical Software Industry Association around how we can develop standards around this. But it's it's uh, an ongoing collaborative process. It's not an overnight one recommendation. So whilst we're excited to see the recommendation, many of us who will look at it and going, oh my God, that's 10 years worth of work and they want it done by next July. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, and again, not totally across the detail of it, but certainly in relation to the optics of it, it would seem like being, you know, such an emotional topic and one that requires action quickly, having a turnaround time of something like 12 months is probably, you know, it's necessary on one hand in terms of inciting urgency. At the same time, the practical implementation of it, you and I know that there's a lot of steps to get there. Yep. It seems The good thing is, I guess, it does it does force us to start. So, mm -hmm. I mean, we've got a, a start by date. So, I guess, you know, if, if funding is linked to that startup day, then people will need, need to uh, get their houses in order and start getting their proposals ready and deliveries ready. But the danger here is that it'll then get subcontracted out to a large consultancy organization who will wrap it up in a whole bunch of detail and not deliver what's needed, which is you know, on the ground technology, which improves the quality of life for their client and improves the, the quality of work for the uh, provider. Yeah, man, I'm all about the practical application and the getting things done. And so from your side, then the practical application of it, how do we go about enabling some better use of technology in aged care more general? Okay, well, I mean, the first thing we need to do is actually provide basic digital skills training for everyone involved in aged care. Now, we can no longer use the old excuse, I don't understand technology, I don't get involved in this, you know, it's, it's not, not part of my job, it's not, not within my pay grade. Everyone needs to understand the basics of, of digital technology because it is now an essential tool in everything we do. Once we start with that, we then need to then develop management roles with IT responsibilities that report at the very least to the COO, the Chief Operating Officer, but preferably they should be reporting up to the CEO and the board because board governance is now a key requirement of uh, aged care delivery. So the board needs to understand that if they're going to invest significant amounts of fund into technology, how it's going to be implemented, how it's going to be used, what the value criteria is, is why they should be investing there rather than investing in, in other services. Um, they have to have direct links to the care delivery team, possibly through like we have a clinic, chief clinical information officer in, in, in healthcare. There could be a chief care informatics officer in, in aged care who links the technology organized part of the organization with the care organization. And we need to also bring that technical capability. You either bring it in-house or you outsource it, but you 
outsource it to organizations that understand the challenges of aged care. This is not the same as implementing IT in a bank or implementing IT in a retail store. This is a much more complex, much higher risk uh, domain. We need people with data analysis skills. We're going to be capturing a lot of data. We're capturing you know, some data now for administration purposes, but as we implement new systems, we're going to be capturing data that we've never had access to before. What do we do with that data? Do we just store it away for, for posterity? Do we stick it in an annual report? No, we need to take that data and use that data to improve care. How do we do that? We analyze that data. We look for trends. We identify issues that we can respond to early, and we respond to them early. We've well been demonstrated that if you catch people as they're deteriorating in either physically or mentally and provide services around those deterioration, you can slow down, if not stop that deterioration. You can provide them with a higher quality of life whilst they're going through that physiological or behavioral uh, deterioration. Those are the things we need to do. Yeah? Not just capture data, not just stick in devices, wrap it around services. Nice. And so then thinking around the technology itself, you spoke about before how a lot of the technology that's used within aged care is for administration and billing, and, and there are some others too, but is there space for more innovation in aged care technology generally? And if so, how do we go about implementing some of that innovation and more quickly? Yep. Well, I mean, I think there are some really good examples of local innovation, companies like UMPS, companies like Halo, companies like HSC Technology, which has licensed some of the technology from the Australian eHealth Research Center. We touched earlier on the, the great work being done by CoView in promoting the use of telehealth type services beyond just the standard one-to-one -one consultations. And, and there's a plethora of other organizations that are, that are doing some great work in innovation. The challenge is, is taking that innovation and moving it beyond a research project. I've done a lot of work with uh, academics in the, the universities where their uh, master's students have developed some great ideas, but once the master's thesis is delivered, that technology gets wrapped away in a binder, stuck up on the shelf in the library, never utilized again. So we need to support startups who can recognize what the issues, and as we touched on earlier, integrate care providers into those startups. So you know, they, they, they need to be both technology and care services startups. At the upcoming ITAC event, we actually have a pitch fest where we have 10 aged care specific startups pitching to both investors and to providers looking for their next steps. We've been doing that for a number of years now through the ITAC event and through, through their, our organization. One of the key recommendations of the Care IT report was to develop a network of living labs where providers, consumers, academics and innovators can collaborate on developing local solutions and test them in a real life environment. You know, aged care providers will make some of their clients available for testing rather than simulated testing or model testing or you know, assumptions about what it is that the elderly people require from those services. Test them in the real world, small scale initially and then scale out, but you know, use the consumers of the services as a test bed obviously with their consent, obviously with their support, but you know, that's the beauty of a living lab methodology within aged care providers rather than within academia where we've seen a number of living labs basically being simulation labs. Great for trying things out, but you need to try them out in the real world because the realities are the, of the real world are a lot more complex than anything you can model in a university environment. Hey, look, bring things home for me, George. Say we get things right, everything goes well. In your opinion, what does aged care look like in five years' time? So if it was perfect, the gold standard, everything goes perfect versus, you know, just the realistic, what's the most likely scenario going to happen? 
so one of the big things identified by the Royal Commission was the huge backlog in home care clients waiting for services. So if we can use technology to implement things like smart homes and telecare solutions, which can allow more efficient use of human resources and even enable us to share the workload with family and caregivers, I think we can get rid of that huge backlog. And that'll be a great start. We'll have people who need healthcare, need aged care services at home getting those services at home. So more people will be better managed at home. The need for residential services will be limited to only high care needs. And that can be better resourced by making sure we provide the specialist services they need in residential care for those who need residential care and also provide high quality services in home so that people can stay at home and age in place, age at home better, but with the care they need. The interaction between the aged care and healthcare system will be better because we're now talking about standardized data transfers between them. So we'll be able to know when an elderly person is coming into an ED department, prepare for them, have systems that's ready for them. We've already seen some great examples. My old friend, Steve Boyard, just set up an older people in the emergency room operation many years ago at Westmead Hospital, where they facilitated the care of elderly people coming into emergency departments with geriatricians and with people specialized in that skill, if we can facilitate that communication, there's no reason why GPs or services outside the aged care sector can't help manage that to make that easier. Access to services can be enhanced by things like consumer portals, an easy way to use and facilitate the delivery of services. I mean, at the moment, we have My Aged Care, which is a great idea, but the implementation and the complexity of it has been a bit of a challenge. Whereas we can have consumer portals where people can pick what services they want, They'll know what's available. They can, they'll know what, be able to schedule them into their day. The family can be actively involved. And I think that'll make a huge difference in that we'll shift into a consumer-driven type model because the consumer will have access to all the same information as the providers and the regulators do. Innovation and research will con combine to develop evidence-based improved models of care. I think that's really important, especially for things like dementia, frailty, loneliness, and a whole bunch of other age-related conditions. We may never be able to find cures for these things, but let's remember, aging is not a disease. It is a physiological process. So we need to develop ways of supporting people through that process based on evidence, not just hearsay, not just best wishes, not just optimistic thoughts, but evidence-based solutions that make a difference. And that's, yeah, we need researchers to do that. We need education for our providers to do that. So I'm optimistic, but I have to be realistic about this as well. My first smart home project for aging was in 2006 with the Queensland government. And most of that is still not routinely available. So yeah, I'm getting a bit more impatient now because I'm starting to approach the age group where they need this and maybe my whinging will speed things up. But the reality <laughs> is, is that there are opportunities here to really provide services and care for a huge chunk of the Australian population who, let's be honest, has delivered a lot to this country over the last you know, 50 years. So they really need, they deserve to have the services that we can provide them available to them. What a great summary. Thank you so much, George, for taking the time to take us through that journey and put it in practice and in perspective for different parts of the healthcare and aged care industry. So look, I'll put some more details in relation to the council and what you do in the show notes of this episode and on the website so people can get in touch if they have more questions. Uh, look, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Pete. And thanks for the work you're doing in promoting the use of technology in health and aged care. I think it's a really important step. And yeah, the more people know about it, the more they can actually get involved in it. So let's join in this together. Love it. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry.
Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.